Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Geordie Setter. Geordie is a futurist with a career of more than 35 years, researching, studying, teaching, and writing about change and future studies. As a consultant, Geordie has collaborated with a variety of public, private, and international organizations all over the world to integrate strategy, intelligence in their work. He has published several books and papers for academic journals in English, Spanish and Catalan. He is also a member of the editorial board of Futures, the World Future Review and Revista, IAPEM. Geordie also has an extensive experience in academia, having taught and lectured in many universities worldwide. He is currently Deputy Director of the Centre for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies. Welcome to FuturePod, Geordie. Thank you, and well found, as we say. <laughs> Thanks. So, Geordie, question one, what is the Geordie Serra story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, it all started back uh, when I was in high school. It turned out that the principal of my school was also the director of a Barcelona NGO called Centra Catalana Prospectiva, oh. it's something like Future Studies uh, Catalan Center. And I don't know, for some reason, he thought I could be interested. Of course, when you get an invitation from your principal, you <laughs> accept it. Of course. I went. I said, well, that's not bad. But you see, at the beginning, I thought it would be just like something like a hobby. My plans was uh, de- back then go for for law, but in '84 we invited Jim Dator. He came to Barcelona, and then uh, he invited me to the uh, Dubrovnik International Course that the World Futures Studies Federation was organizing yearly uh, back then, and. Well, I went to Dubrovnik and I discovered that there were people that were working professionally in futures. They were professors, they were consultants, and then is when I, I made a click. So I decided that there were enough lawyers in Barcelona, <laughs> but there were no futurists. I decided to aim for it. It was hard because there was no place in Spain to study future studies. And of course, I, I wanted to, to go to Hawaii. And let me tell you, it was very hard to get funding to go to study future studies in Hawaii. <laughs> Eventually, I made it. Uh, and then when I got back home, I started working as a futurist with ups and downs because in general, Barcelona and Spain in general, it's a tough place to do future studies. Uh, I usually say that the, the most future-oriented activity most uh, organizations do is next year budget. Mm. So it, it has been hard, but at the same time, rewarding. I had to do so many different things and work in so many different fields 
that uh, in this sense has been quite quite interesting. So Hale in Ayatollah usually says that one of the reasons we futurists uh, do this thing is because our inability to decide what do we really like. <laughs> well, in this regard, I, I can say that it's quite accurate because <laughs> I got to, to work in very different uh, fields. And well, right now I combine uh, three main activities. One is uh, as deputy director of the CPPFS, where mostly I, I'm in charge of research, which I really like. Then I'm also assistant professor in, in one of the Barcelona universities, Blanquerna Universitat Ramon Llull. And that I also like it very much because in my opinion, I, I'm never sure that I have really mastered something until I'm not able to teach it to someone else. Mm. So teaching provides me plenty of uh, opportunities to test and develop some of the ideas I come up with when researching. And finally, I also get to do some consultancy work, which is good because uh, you see, when you do this kind of work, your customers, your client, they are not really very interested in the theory of the method. They are just interested in the results. So it's like one way to see if what you are trying to come up with works or, or not. So the combination of the three is sometimes, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, it's difficult. But I think it's, it, it helps me to, to be a better futurist and above all, not to get uh, frozen. Because when researching, I have to keep pushing certain ideas and concepts. When I teach, I have to see if they really stand, if, if they work, if the people get them. And when I do consultancy, I have to see if they are really useful or workable at all. Yeah, it's a very good point um, that it is always good for practice to have uh, multiple tests of of the effectiveness of what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, but it's like a, a three legs stall. You see, without one, it's not that stable, because. If I could only do research, well, the paper can almost hold everything. So you can put the most crazy ideas, black and white, and you can get away with it. When you teach, uh, basically you are in a position of power. So again, if, if you only teach, but you, are, you keep not renewing your stuff, you may be outdated pretty fast. And if you just do consultancy, what I've uh, learned is so discovered is that many consultants live and die by their method, mm. the, the method they are selling. But you know, uh, in my experience, there's not a single method that can work in every case, occasion of circumstance. So you need to be flexible. Maybe they are bad consultants, but many consultants seem to have a hard time changing the methods, the approaches, or trying new things. So I think that the three, the combination of the three, although, as I say, it's, it's hard sometimes, it can have a very reinf positive reinforcing effect on the others. True, true. Thanks, Jordi. Next question, the one where I encourage you to talk to the listeners about 
a method or a framework that is central to your practice and take the time to both explain it, but also how you use it and how you make it part of your uh, your practice suite. So what do you want to talk about? Okay, I would like to talk about the, the three tomorrows. But before explaining it, let me just make a little bit of a recap. You see, the people that we created, the, the center, basically Zia, John Trini, and, and others, some of us had been already working for some time before than that because we were not very happy or fully satisfied with the results of our work. I don't think we are bad futurists, but sometimes we didn't quite hit the nail. So some things we were missing, some things we were not getting them right. So for years, we were trying to improve our work. Of course, we could say that in some cases, we didn't have uh, the best uh, sources or the best information. That's true. In other cases, we could even say that some of the methods we were using need some update. That's also true. But then in other cases, it was not really that, and yet we were not really getting the the right stuff. So we were trying different approaches and tried different things, and it is within this context that Zia, Ziaudin Sardar, came with the notion of post-normal times. So basically he was saying, no, no, it's not that we are not doing our work well enough. It's not that we are not applying well the methods. It's not that we don't have the information. It's that reality is changing and change itself, as we had understood, is also changing. So that was like, wow, what about if he is right? (laughs) (laughs) So we start working on that and, and we realized that the main problem is that we were trying to, let's say, capture and process reality with the categories and concepts that were no longer, say, good enough, applicable, or or, or really relevant enough. So as soon as we got into that uh, direction, lots of things began to make sense in in a different way. Basically, the notion of post-normal times tells us that we are in between, in an interstitial space. So something is finishing, is ending, and the new thing is not really uh, up, fully up. So we are in this Ezio Mauro, uh, Mauro, the Italian journalist called, between the um, no longer and not yet, something in between. So that's a very, say, stressing period in many senses. And, and, and we this pandemic has, has shown it very eloquently. This is very stressing because people is trying to, to recover the sense of, let's say, confidence, trust that the old situation brought to them, this idea of normal, I don't know what it is normal, but we all of us seem to long for it. And we, we try to go back to, to situations that the truth is that they never existed, but it's like, this. no, no, we need to go back to something we like. But we won't. We, we won't be able to do that. But we are very uncertain. We don't know what is coming next. So that helped us to de- to develop the, an emerging theoretical field. We call it post-normal times theory. Among the things uh, we developed in 2016, 
Zia Sardar and John Sweeney wrote The Three Tomorrows of Postnormal Time. Originally, they thought that could be the, the method we were missing. Because, well, okay, so we claim to be futurists. We come up with a new theory to understand what's going on. How do you do future studies with this theory? And we didn't have an answer, so they created the, the three tomorrows. But the point is that it never worked as a method. Because if, if you go and you read the article, it doesn't tell you how to do the tomorrows, how to build the scenarios in every case. It tells you how the scenarios should look like if you want to call them or you want to place them into a particular tomorrow. You see, at the time we were engaged in a, in a research that later on uh, became the book called uh, Muslim Societies in Postnormal Times. And mm. part of the work was creating a scenarios. And I was responsible of producing the first draft. Uh, let me tell you, it was like trying to operate my own throat without a mirror and a, and a rusty utensils. <laughs> so it, it was very hard, painful as it could be, but it got me going. For years, uh, we've been trying to see if there was some kind of, let's say, method that could be pulled out of that. My conclusion is that the Three Tomorrows is not really a, a method. It, but it is an approach, and it works very well as an approach, because basically it helps you decide how to progress when you move along the tomorrows. So basically, what the three tomorrows is a way to engage in a research that it can be mostly future-oriented, but not only. I mean, you can even use the, the three tomorrows to explore a present situation. Mm -hmm. And basically what we do is we start with the first tomorrow. We call it extended present. And we try to uh, find out what do we know about change currently. So where change is going, uh, what is going to be its impact. And it's the kind of future that we can apply our, let's say, traditional established research methods. So we can be evidence-based, we get to gather data, information, uh, we can make uh, time series, we can project them. So it's, it's a very uh, well-established way to study the future. It's a, it's a way to study the future that, for some reason, people seem to trust a lot. Yeah, although it's quite unreliable. You see, surprisingly enough, we all tend to believe that the best way to foretell the future is to rely on past experience. Mm. And if you think about it, that past is the source of the future, it may make sense in a way, but when you are in the middle of so big uh, waves of change as we are now, it, it looks a little bit ridiculous. But you, you start with that. So you, you, you do your first tomorrow. And you have something that you can use as a, some people call it a baseline scenario. So you have something you can depart from. So if things go more or less as they are going right now, it could happen this, it could happen that. But our theory says that current situation is mostly influenced by what we call the three Cs, complexity, chaos, and contradiction. So then we need to question if our scenarios, these first tomorrows, these extended presents, 
do really capture well enough this complexity, this chaos, this contradiction. And most of the time they don't, because most of the traditional uh, methods, they make you to pick the key variables, to reduce the number of variables. So the moment you do that, you are beginning to chop off uh, complexity. So it's, it's very hard to, to capture complexity in traditional, most of traditional methods. But not only that, we also say that change has changed. So things go faster, they are more expansive, the impacts escalate, and they tend to trigger simultaneous changes as well. And again, most of the traditional methods uh, cope very badly with this kind of change. So most of our methods assume that change will go the same direction at the same speed that it has gone so far. And that does not happen, simply. So we need to move on to a second tomorrow. And in this second tomorrow, what we encourage to do is look for new things, look for disruptive changes, look for things that can really impact and mess these trends that we have developed in the first scenario. And here you can no longer rely data and information because some things may be too new. Uh, when SARS-CoV-2 uh, hit us by April or May, we knew very little of, of the virus itself. We still don't know uh, uh, enough of the virus. Back then, we, we knew uh, very little. But what many people did is they began to develop models, assuming that the virus could uh, behave in a certain manner or not, or, or even considering, even if we didn't know the behavior of the virus, what could be its impact. So this is a different kind of uh, engaging in futures. So in these cases, you don't really uh, concern yourself with probability. Because as uh, Nassim Taleb taught us, there are things that can have a very low probability of happening, but if they happen, they will really hit us very hard, mm. the famous black swans. So this is a different ballgame. So you, you really need to be able to speculate about impact. And it turns out that some people that are really very good in this kind of exercise are not futurists, but sometimes they are artists, they are... I don't know, science fiction writers, they are radicals, activists, this kind of people. They don't concern themselves if something is more or less probable, but they try to understand if something happens, what it may trigger. So then is when you move to the second tomorrow, familiar futures, and you can tap on all this uh, variety of, of already existing futures, what uh, Sohail Inayatullah call use futures, you, 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 you use them, but you have to use them in a, let's say, a critical structure manner. So mm. if we are going, I don't know, uh, to a kind of Mad Max uh, collapse scenario, let's try to think if, if the kind of image those movies portray are, are more or less structured, they make sense, they, they seem, uh, let's say, reasonable under certain conditions, so on, so forth. So Second tomorrow, uh, familiar futures, you, you want to explore different possibilities regardless of the probability. But then many times we end up in situations that before many people thought that they would be unlikely, sometimes even impossible. So that 
got us thinking, why is it that some futures options systematically seem to be left out of our consideration? You see, then is when Zia ran into that concept of the unthought. Mm. The unthought is a concept originally developed by a philosopher, Arkun. He was using it for theological purposes. But, well, we futurists, as Wendy Schultz says, are like intellectual magpies. If it shines, we take it. <laughs> so for Arkun, the unthought was a way to explain the relevance of God for a believer. So he basically said, if you are a, a faithful person, a true believer, God is your thought. It's something you cannot, uh, let's say, uh, remove from your worldview. You can maybe discuss with other people about uh, the implications of God existing or not. But at the end of the day, God is an integral part of your worldview, of your persona, if I may. So it turns out that because we are all being born into particular cultural milieus with a particular background, that all of us have certain thoughts. Uh, you probably know that famous quotation from Jameson. Uh, we find it easier to discuss about the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It mm. is very true for many people. So that means for those people that find it easier to talk about the end of the world at the end of capitalism, that capitalism is dead and thought. I've been working many times with people from law enforcement or intelligence people, and chances are we will talk about terrorism. So terrorists are always the bad guys, and they are always the good guys. Mm -hmm. So th the possibility that they could be the bad guys is there and thought. So we all have thoughts. So sometimes what we need to do is go to the roots, to the guts of our thoughts, and understanding why certain future options are left out. With the center, we were doing a, a workshop, wonderful workshop in Sarajevo. Bosnia is, is a very complicated place. Basically, they feel, the Muslims there, they feel that they have no future. So we were doing this uh, three tomorrows exercise, and the first, uh, the extended present, and the second, familiar future, were very negative scenarios, things going from bad to worse, another civil war, uh, more cleansing, so on and so forth. And I was bracing myself for the third tomorrow because I thought, gee, this is going to be so depressing. We, we, we will all commit suicide here or something. And then they realized that the one thing that they were refusing to accept is that the future could somehow change. So they began to explore what were the things that they all uh, share. So we are all Slavics. So we are all certain cultural uh, similarities. We are all we all like same kind of food apart from pork, of course. They realized that they were looking at the future through a particular lenses that were mostly, of course, conditioned by, by the history they share. So this third tomorrow, what we call unthought futures, is the futures we force ourselves to consider those possibilities that we consciously or unconsciously we are not adding to, to, to the mix. So when you do the three of them, the, the result is very powerful because there are several implications. First of all, that there's not really a better or worse way to look into the future. 
they are all good and bad in different regards. You cannot really engage in a thought future without doing the, the others before. It turned out that despite the trends can be unreliable for certain things, they can be very useful for others because they really help you understand how things have been uh, happening, so on and so forth. Uh, you need to consider the impact of new things and you need to, let's say, force yourself to reflect on how you engage into the future and why you look into the future from a particular standpoint or another. So when you do the three of them, they become very complementary. It's not that the one is more uh, short-term or longer-term because the, the one lesson we have learned from the pandemic is they can all happen, the three of them can happen simultaneously. Mm. Uh, you can look at the pandemic and realize there are part of, of, of this that can be understood with the first tomorrow, but others uh, require the second or the, or, or the third. So right now I, I, I have developed what I call a structured process so I could help my, my students and people at the workshops to move along the, the future. So it's, it's a process that first... I ask them to identify the key items in every tomorrow. So one could be change, in another could be novelty, in the third could be the unthought. Then I ask them some questions to help them focus in the right direction. And finally, I provide them some steps to build actual scenarios in a particular way. But you see, this is just a, a one way to use the approach of the three tomorrows. That's why I, I really encourage people to do it, is that the three tomorrows will let you use many different methods, and people may probably come up with different ones. As, as long as you follow this uh, logic of looking at the futures from different perspectives, trying to, to move around this future you, you want to uncover, it, it can work out very well. It's very interesting that where you said you talk about all the tomorrows occur simultaneously because, of course, they have to occur simultaneously because people or organizations or even events are in different worlds, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you see, this is one of the things we, we are learning by working on our theory is that most of times nowadays, the problem is not what we don't know, but what we think we know. Mm. So, for instance, we, are, we got so used to thinking linear terms that we are assuming that it works in every occasion, in every case, every time. And it doesn't. Even ourselves, when we were first approaching the tomorrows, we were implicitly taking this linear thinking approach. So first, the first tomorrow, short term, and then the second tomorrow, medium term, then the unthought long term. And it's not like that. Mm. Of course, you may think that the more connected to the present situation a scenario is, the shorter it will be because me assuming that things don't change, well, it's, it's ridiculous nowadays. But that doesn't mean that certain things of this first tomorrow can last for a very long time. Because, for instance, some cultural ideas can be there. Then again, we tend to believe that the impact of certain new things will take a lot of time to happen. And no, we see it constantly. Something new pops up and the speed to which we all react and adapt to it is, is, is so uh, amazing. 
And then things like this pandemic show us that some of the tenets of our lifestyle are so contingent. So all of a sudden, many people have begun to understand the, the implications, the negative implications of many things that we do and our, let's say, globalized lifestyles. So that's something I would really want to stress. No tomorrow is better or superior to the others. They, the three of them have their place, and it's by being the three of them together, by working on the three of them together and going back to one another, is, is when you really can get a better idea of the future. That, that uh, question that you may remember I said before that we weren't happy with the results with our uh, work is because we never took the time to consider what, which were the options that we were not taking account. We never considered how was our own worldview uh, harming or limiting, conditioning our uh, future work. Th- there's a question I usually ask my students at a certain point in my courses. I ask them, do you think what you think because of what you see, or do you see what you see because of what you think? And it's it's not a war game. And we all like to believe that we think what we think because of what we see. But it turns out that many times we see what we see because of what we think. Until you are really able to realize that sometimes you are forcing your perceptions to suit your worldview, then you are in trouble. So another thing I usually say is that this post-normal times approach to future is like playing sort of intellectual ping pong and in which you have to go back and forth from what your perception of reality and your processing of this perception. It's not good enough that you develop the best system, the best lenses, the best sensors to capture reality if you are not equally capable of updating your processing system. It doesn't matter that you have the best lenses to look at reality if if you are processing it using really all uh, outdated categories. Because remember, if we are right, and these are truly post-normal times, as we believe they are, the old categories will no longer really help us. And that's, that's the tragedy of the present moment. So we are trying to make sense with categories that no longer hold mm. while we have not been really able to develop the, the new ones. So we are in this, uh, let's say, unstable moment that we are trying to find direction while building new compasses and new maps at the same time. But as a future is, is always uh, is also a very exciting time. Take your pick. Uh, you can. The other day I said, if if optimism has to be built on data, well, that's not really an optimism. <laughs> it's good enough. <laughs> Thanks, Jody. Question three, Geordie, the one where you get, I asked Geordie Sarah, citizen of the world, how is how is he making sense of the emerging futures around him? And also what futures are interesting you, what futures are getting your attention? Well, because of 
the kind of work I'm currently doing, uh, right now I tend to look at things in this framework of, of three tomorrows. So most of, let's say, extended present futures I see around are very depressing because uh, things are going south in many fields. It's, it's not just the, the climatic thing. It's, for instance, you look at politics and how populism, authoritarianism, and how almost everywhere the quality of uh, civic and democratic life is going down. So in this regard, first tomorrows are depressing. But you also see uh, many things popping up. And in this regard, let's hope that this pandemic can, can really help. So for instance, like uh, I think it's in Amsterdam that they are trying to come up with a new economic model for the city, what it's called the donut models, how so many people is really taking the goals for the millennium seriously. And also the, the younger generation, teenagers in many cases, that first of all, they let us know how bad we are running things, how screw is uh, the world we are living to them and how they are trying to come up with different alternatives. Of course, they don't have a lot of power. They may have, in some cases, soft power, like Greta Thunberg. Or, but many cases, they, they are not buying the futures, the, the images, and even the narratives we the olders are selling. So that gives me hope because in some cases they, they show a lot of dignity that we seem to have lost along the way. And the other thing is that, and, and it's one of the things I, I, I really like the most about the pandemic, it has made evident that unthoughts are there. So all of a sudden, many people realize that maybe capitalism is not a good, that maybe this global change supply are not that good. That although Amazon is, is, is cool, if you are in confinement, it has also a, a, a dark side. So I think that the real problem is that we lack true governance to, as we say, navigate through this time. Mm. So we are res resorting to all liberal democracy, liberal in the political science sense, and it falls short. And of course it does. So after all, it, we are talking of, of, of a tool that was developed in the 17th century, was tinkered a bit in the 18th century, and there we are. So it's like if we were trying to uh, treat our diseases with the, uh, the tools, the, the medicine we had at the 18th century, we would be dying like flies. Mm. So we, we need to game up our governance. Uh, but because of this longing for normal things, we seem to be closer to go back to all things. So in many senses, especially in Europe, what is happening resembles a lot what was happening in the, uh, the, the period between World War I and World War II. All this movement pretending that my, my right to be ignorant is uh, as respectable as uh, your right to be uh, healthy which is uh, shocking in so many ways, it only confirms my, my, my idea that these are post-normal times. So I think that th there's basically two, two options we have. So one is we need to, to up our game 
being more able to understand what's going on and trying to find what are the alternatives we can uh, have and go for them, build them if need be, or just let things uh, happen and then we will probably going to be even in, in, in deeper and, and worse uh, trouble. So what? I'm not going to let you leave it there. Okay. Yes, I agree. Those are the two choices. So what are you choosing and how are you choosing? Well, clearly, um, I mean the first choice. You see, the most significant part of my work of these last four or five years is, is trying to better understand how is change unfolding nowadays and what we can do about it. So, for instance, we keep saying that unlike all times uh, future studies that particularly in the French school, that they thought that the future could be controlled, could be shaped. We don't believe that, but we think that the future can be navigated. But if anyone has a little knowledge of navigation, there are two elements that are required here. You, you, you need to have a sense of the territory, of the sea, of a map, if you want, and you need to set course. So you need to know where is uh, the safe port for you or not. That's the thing we, we need to, to really put our effort on. So, for instance, uh, right now, the, the climatic uh, crisis is, is coming onto us faster than many people thought. So th that's where we need to put our effort. Because, I mean, this is going to affect all of us, no matter where you live, in different ways. Some, probably some places are going to be hit harder but it's going to affect all of us. So we, we, we really need to start thinking how are we going to navigate that. And then again, the world is more crowded than ever. So we are talking of literally millions and millions of people. All of them uh, want to have uh, a shot at a decent life, and that's, that's a huge challenge. Uh, so we need to think all these, uh, let's say, images of the future that we are selling for certain people and this, some of these images of the future cannot be enjoyed by all of us. So we need to develop uh, different images of the future. And this is where we futurists can, can help. And notice that I'm saying help. I don't think we need to lead or, or be the, the main, say, reference here. We, we can help people understand that certain choices in the present, present may have certain consequences in the future. That if you want to build something, you need to understand how are the the causal links and networks uh, working there and, and, and you need to be ready to act in particular ways and most likely to give, to give up to others, which is that that is the part of the future. It's, it's like the small typing that most people don't read. <laughs> the fine print. Yeah, yeah, the fine print. So we, we are all focusing on the cool things we can get in the future, but not everybody does understand that some of them may entail require that we uh, renounce to others so that's the catch thanks Jordy question four interested to hear how you answer this one so this is the one of, of communication how do how do you explain what you do to people <laughs> who don't necessarily understand what you do. Let me start by sharing with you something I always say. You see, my, my two parents die without having a clue 
of what it is what I do. So I, I had this cyclical conversation with my, my mother. She would come to me, Jordi, can you explain me again what it is that, <laughs> that you do? <laughs> and I knew it, that that was because probably she had met a neighbor or, or, yeah. or a friend and she had been unable <laughs> <laughs> to explain uh, what it is my job. Only when my kids were, were small, you know, these days that what does your dad do? So they had no problem telling that my wife is a lawyer. <laughs> they, they couldn't explain what was their father doing. My son assumed that it was something cool uh, because sometimes I made it to the papers and for a while I was even in a TV show. I, I even come up with a, with a very short definition of what it is, what I do, because I get asked very frequently. So they ask me, what? As in, in in Latin languages, we don't say future studies. We say prospective, prospectiva. What it is? So it's it's. I, I tell, always tell is the discipline that studies the future to understanding and and to shape it. So if they are just trying to be, let's say, nice with me, that's all. If they are really interested, then I, I can develop. So w w I say it's a discipline because it, it's something that can be learned something that can be studied. Maybe it's not a fully-fledged science, but we try to, to be as rigorous uh, as we can. That studies the future, but actually what we do is what we try to uncover is what may happen in the future. So the future is not the object, it's the context. Uh, to understand it, that's the key part. So we are not trying to predict the future. So of all the things we can learn about the future, what may happen is the least interesting. What we really try to uncover is how and why. Because if you, if you get how and why, is when you can do something about it, which is the, the end, the final purpose. We are not doing this just because we enjoy knowing more things about the future. We are doing this because we want to be able to, if not control it or shape it, which is maybe a little bit naive, to at least uh, be knowing that certain things have certain consequences and act accordingly. So, in a sense, uh, when when I'm asked, I think that all these years I've been not only working, studying, because basically that invitation that I got to go to the Centra Catala Perspective, I was 17 at the time, so it has <laughs> it's, it's going to be 40 years soon. Uh, I've been trying to understand change. Yeah, and and that's probably the best uh, way to describe what I do, I, because many people think that I'm being so interested in the future. No, no, the future is the is is the consequences of of change. So, so if I try to understand change, I have to to have a, a also a, a little understanding of of what may be the the effect of that change. So first of all, uh, originally I was interested by this future. But over the years, I understood that the, it's like if you get the main dish, so the, the future is the, the side salad, the stick is understanding how change uh, works. Thanks, Jordi. All right, Bert, question five. Have you got... Any sense of what you want to cover off? Anything you haven't covered off? You see, there's, there's something that really concerns me, which is the present prevalence of 
lies, fakes, alternatives, facts. Mm. I found this old quotation from Isaac Asimov, why do you think your ignorance is as valuable as data? I think this is also part of, of, of post-normal times. So a, a postmodern would say that fact is also a, a, a creation. And it may be correct that truth is, is, is a complex concept, but I think we should be at least be able to, to denounce lies for what they are. It's really concerning for me that lies have so much power nowadays. I know that many people is uh, concerned about the end of narratives and that how everything right now becomes a battle for 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 the for the narrative. But I wonder if this is a, a concern of old timers. So, there's young people, people for instance that are right now thirties. Maybe they are not so young, but someone that is in early thirty right now probably has only known crisis. So they probably finish their studies during the, the previous crisis. Maybe they were getting uh, beginning to, to settle down, and now this thing is sending them back to square one uh, with all the other travels. And I think this, this generation is looking at the future in, in a different way. Some of them are angry. So you may remember last year there were a lot of uh, riots also here in Barcelona and we were protesting and I was in some of those, couple of those uh, demonstrations and I got to interact with really young people and I was shocked to see how they were facing the protest. So I was very much in the non-violent uh, more trying to, let's say, apply all these principles of no violent fight. And they were ready to engage face-to-face with police. And they, they were not advocating for violence, but they were ready to fight back. Uh, actually, there were a couple of manifestos those days, and they were basically saying, we will also fight back with, for me, I read it as our future. So I, I think that if I'm right and the essence of post-normal times is this transition between the, the old and the new. Maybe I'm part of the old or too much part of the old to really see the new for what it is. But I think that uh, maybe the, the, the new will not follow theories or, or, or my, my way to looking at, at, at it. And some of them, they are very aware of the challenges, which is good. Uh, because uh, only when you know the, the dimension of, of what you are facing is what you can be really capable of doing something about it. But I don't think they will. They want to follow the categories, the framework, the structures people like me could provide. So if you ask me if I am, uh, let's say, pessimistic or optimistic, I, I would simply refuse to follow that choice. I think that if I am a futurist, I need to have hope in something. And I have hope that this uh, new generation will be able to find uh, a way, a narrative, if you want, that uh, can uh, help us or, or at least help them to navigate through these post-normal times. Yep, I'd agree with that, Jordi. 
on behalf of the FuturePod community, thank you very, very much for taking some time out to have a conversation with us. I do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Shorty. You're very welcome. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.